This morning in worship, we continue our Thrive sermon series in the Gospel of Matthew. And our text this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25. It's a familiar parable, the parable of the talents. I invite you to listen for God's word. For it is as if a man going on a journey summoned his slaves and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one to each according to his ability. And then he went away. The one who had received the five talents went off at once and traded with them and made five more talents. In the same way, the one who had the two talents made two more talents. But the one who had received the one talent went off and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. Then the one who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five more talents, saying, Master, you handed over to me five talents. See, I've made five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and trustworthy slave. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one with two talents came forward saying, Master, you handed over to me two talents. See, I've made two more talents. And his master said to him, Well done, good and trustworthy slave. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Then the one who had received the one talent also came forward, saying, Master, I knew that you were a harsh man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter seed. So I was afraid. And I went and I hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master replied, you wicked and lazy slave. You knew, did you, that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I did not scatter? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And on my return, I would have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one with ten talents. For to all those who have, more will be given. And they will have an abundance. But from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. And as for this worthless slave, throw him into the outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Will you join me in a word of prayer? Almighty and gracious God, as we come to this text, we come and ask that you would open our eyes and ears that we might receive from you what you have for us this day. Speak to us now as only a living God can. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You know, we've just recently finished the Major League Baseball season. And have I mentioned before that the L.A. Dodgers won the World Series this year? You know, years ago, there was what came to be known as the Zeke Banura rule of life in baseball. Now, Zeke was a first baseman in the Major Leagues who was a rather mediocre fielder. But many years he would end up with the best fielding percentage in the major leagues. 
He played for seven seasons in the majors, and he led the American League in fielding percentage three years. His career fielding percentage was .992. How did he do it? Well, you see, Zeke knew better than anyone else that you could never get charged with an error if you didn't touch the ball. So with this in mind, he managed to avoid anything that even looked remotely risky. The Zeke Banura rule of life is to avoid anything risky and maintain your fielding percentage. It sounds just a little bit like the strategy of one of those who received the talents in today's parable. Now, if you're looking for financial guidance, if it's free, it's called advice. If you pay for it, it's called counseling. And if you can use either one, it's called a miracle. This year of 2020 has certainly provided plenty for us to be worried about. The pandemic of COVID-19 is surging once again, bringing a new wave of closings throughout the world and the country, just as our country is getting ready to gather for Thanksgiving with extended families. The economy has yet to bounce back, even though the stock market seems to have regained some footing. And the social unrest over the summer and the election with all the challenges for an orderly transfer of power Well, that's enough to make all of us lay awake at night in our beds. Worry. Worry. It can become paralyzing. This parable tells of a man who calls three servants together and gives each of them a different amount of talents. Now, talent is an amount of money, and this is no small amount of money. I mean, in present day, this money is worth about 15 years of the average salary. So let's say a talent is a million dollars, though it would actually be much more than that today. So the first guy receives about $5 million, and the second one about $2 million, and the worrier receives about a million dollars. Worried that he might lose that entire wad of money, he buries it, rather than buying bonds or taking a chance with the stock market. And I, frankly, I don't blame him. That's a lot to be entrusted with in a risky, volatile, dynamic world. Now, it's not that the first two servants didn't have their share of worry about this assignment. They were probably just as anxious about the circumstances in front of them and as anxious about the owner that was behind them But they didn't allow those external realities to paralyze them. Now, it's sometimes said that there are four kinds of risk. The first one is the risk one can accept. The second is the risk one must accept. The third is the risk one can afford to take. And finally, number four, the risk one cannot afford not to take. Once there was a test pilot who was strapped in his seat, ready for takeoff in an experimental aircraft, and 
At the last minute, he received a radio contact from a reporter who asked, as you prepare for your maiden test flight, how are you feeling? And the pilot responded, well, how would you feel sitting on 10 million parts that are all supplied by the lowest bidder? Still, he took off despite the risk. All three recipients of the opportunity had plenty to worry about. But apparently, the other two had the kind of worry that actually works. They all shared the same circumstances. They all had the same boss. They all had the same job to do. And this is long before there's any rules or regulatory agencies like the Security and Exchange Commission. Two made worrying about it work for them. The third was poisoned by it. Whatever else these two servants may have accomplished, they did something substantial. They doubled the funds that were given to them. And their boss rewarded each one of them for their efforts. But the third one was frozen in his tracks. Maybe he believed some of the stories about his boss, that he was harsh, even a thief. See, here's the thing. Good worry actually leads to constructive action. It's toxic worry that does the opposite. It paralyzes me. I stew and I brood and I lie awake in the middle of the night and meanwhile, I don't take action. Now, many years ago, one afternoon I asked my father to join me. I wanted to talk to him about something. So we ran a few errands and we sat down in one of those old-fashioned fountains in the drugstores of long ago. I'd been dating for a year and I wanted to ask Lynn to marry me, but I didn't know how to go about it. I was frozen in my tracks. So I asked my father what to do. Dad, I think I want to ask Lynn to marry me, but I don't have any money. I don't have the slightest idea of the right way to ask her. And my father wisely replied, don't worry about all that. Just ask her. There isn't any wrong way. I was so excited and yet frightened by it all, I still almost blew the request. Thankfully, she overlooked my lack of sophistication, and she's had to do that ever since. This was a risk I could not afford not to take. I was in love. And we would all prefer a better guarantee than the promise for better or worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health. But that's the risk. And remarkably, it becomes an amazing adventure. So this is a parable about how to be and how not to be a servant. The enormity of the sum entrusted illustrates the extravagance of the master. What God entrusts to us is abundant. It's precious. 
should never be squandered. And beginning with the distribution, each servant receives something. No one comes away empty-handed. The master distributes in such a way that each one has something to offer, something with which to invest in life, something to be used. No one need be useless. Everyone has been given capacity for rendering some service without which the world will be a poorer place. Mother Teresa received the Nobel Peace Prize for her work with and among the very poorest of the poor in Calcutta, India, through the Sisters of Charity. She and they often picked up the dying from the streets and cared for them with dignity. And she wrote about their work. She wrote, quote, We ourselves feel that what we are doing is just a drop in the ocean. But if the drop was not in the ocean, I think the ocean would be less because of that missing drop. I do not agree with the big way of doing things. To us, what matters is the individual. To get to love the person, we must come in close contact with him. End quote. See, each of us has received something to give, some drop in that ocean that is ours alone to offer. Now, the problem in the parable really begins with the awareness that the distribution is not equal. There's no justification here for some perverted understanding of divinely appointed stations in life. The caste system in India was partially responsible for the neglect of the needs of the poor and the sick. Mother Teresa and the Sisters of Charity were motivated by their Christian conviction that each person is a child of God made in the image of the Creator and therefore deserving of dignity. So the the parable doesn't justify inequality. It merely reflects the reality that we can all testify to, that some are born with more, more talent, more capacity, more opportunity than others. Some have sound bodies and others suffer with illness and infirmities. Some are endowed with intellectual gifts while others work their tails off to succeed. Some are born into loving and nurturing homes with the finest educational resources, while others are severely limited in their ability to develop their gifts. There's a lot of talk these days about white privilege. George Washington Carver recognized such differences when he observed that, quote, a person's success cannot be measured by the position that one has attained in life, but rather by the obstacles that they've had to overcome in order to attain it, end quote. God's distribution is not equal, but servants aren't measured by what they've been given. Rather, they're measured by what they've done with what they've been given. Sometimes I've heard it expressed in this way, What you are is God's gift to you. What you become is your gift to God. 
And you'll never fully become what you can without the courage and the confidence that comes from faith. The tragedy in this story is that one servant thought he was playing it safe. He chose to limit his risk by becoming passive and by doing next to nothing. You and I know what that's like. I mean, afraid of looking mediocre, afraid that when my gifts are compared to others, I won't compare. How unfair it sometimes seems that I should be measured against those who have received so much more. So fearing the comparison, fearing that my meager talent is not really needed, that my little offering is embarrassingly small and won't be missed anyway, it's after all a very large ocean. Maybe I'll just bury it here. And in so doing, we bury ourselves. Without really ever finding out what we have, what we're capable of, we can spend our lives hiding what little we think we have and just creating a world of excuses. I, I have to admit, this, there's a nasty ending to this story, and it bothers me. I mean, what kind of God says to those who have, more will be given, and to those who have not, even what they have will be taken away? It, it sounds mean-spirited. The way the boss beats up on this worried one-talent servant seems rather extreme. So I have to ask myself, what, what is Jesus getting at here? Have I missed something? Maybe this is not really about me or even you or our worries and our dilemmas, financial or otherwise. Quite possibly, the whole thing is meant to show us something about someone else, like God. It helps to think about how this story began. I mean, why was I so shocked by the reaction of the master to this servant, but not shocked by the way this parable starts out? It starts this way, for it is, that is, the kingdom of heaven or the way God behaves, it is as if a man going on a journey summoned his slaves and entrusted his property to them. Now that's some kind of a boss. And, and this is some kind of slavery. The key to the Ferrari Access to the wine cellar, the password to his bank account and his stock portfolio, everything. And remember that Jesus is telling this story towards the end of Matthew's gospel. I mean, in just a few chapters, we know where this story is going to end at the cross. And on his way to the cross, Jesus tells about a Lord and master who called his servants and gave them everything he had. Jesus is on his way to Calvary to give away everything he's got. His life. And it kind of helps put this Lord and Master's anger in some context. 
Will Willimon tells of his days as a college student when another student nearly flunked out of school. The student had received terrible grades one semester. And back in those days, there was one telephone in the hall of the dorm. So everyone could overhear the conversation that was taking place between this student and his mother. And his mother was really giving it to him. You know, most parents are good at that kind of thing in those kind of moments. But later, Willimon talked to his friend who helped put his mother's deep disappointment and anger in context. His friend told him that he was the first in his family ever to go to college. And his mother not only worked at a very difficult job during the day, but she had taken a cleaning job at night in order to afford to pay his college expenses. And that really put this student's goofing off in context. She was working twice as hard to put him through college as he was working in college. She had every right to give him what for, didn't she? So here is Christ giving everything Doesn't he also have the right to be angry with a miserly, overly cautious follower with whom he's entrusted the keys to everything? So this story that had me asking, Lord, how could you do that to this one talented servant? It now has me asking, Lord, how could I do this? to you and your sacrifice. And I I think of all of us gathered here in the safety of our homes today, worshiping virtually. We're a bunch of ordinary people. Yet the Lord says that something extraordinary has been done to us and for us. The Lord Jesus Christ has given to us the kingdom of God, everything he's got. So now there's the accounting. The question, however, Jeff, what have you done with what I've given you? And here's the thing. We have a Savior who wants to see us do well, to succeed in what he's given us to do. So use it or lose it. It's a harsh reality that we lose that which we bury, especially ourselves. And that's precisely why it's so important to decide to do something with what you have been given. We may not be able to do everything, but thank God we can do something. So let us finish with our bitter complaining, if it's only to ourselves about the talents we don't have. Let us finish daydreaming about what our lives should have been like. Rather, let us focus upon that which is within our power to do and to be and to become. Last couple weeks, we've heard a lot about the soul of America. 
any evaluation of our collective soul has to begin with self-examination. So what have you buried out of fear? What has God given you that you've responded with, I was afraid, so I went and hid? Maybe it's time to dig yourself up, to take a calculated risk on a future you cannot yet see. As it says in Hebrews, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. We can live by faith. And it keeps our worry from becoming toxic. Thanks be to God. Amen.